0: So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. So the story is told of this hungry beggar on the streets in India. Every day, in order to survive, he would hold out a simple bowl and passersby would put just small donations of copper coins or from time to time a handful of rice that he could eat to keep him alive from day to day. One day he was on a stretch of land and to his right and to his left. As far as he could see, there was no one until he heard the thunderous sound of a chariot. It turns out the Maharaja had come to town. He had passed by and his chariot stopped right in front of this hungry beggar. Completely taken off guard, the the hungry beggar, not knowing what else to do, simply held up his meager bowl. And this prince, this ruler of the land, steps out in all his regalia. And he, instead of filling his bowl with some donation, instead of filling it with rice for the week or the month, the Maharaja held out his hand as if to ask the beggar for a donation. Well, the beggar was caught completely off guard. He was a little surprised, but then he turned a little bit angry, a little bitter, uh, a little confused. So he he thumbed through the meager portion of rice he had and, and took out five grains of rice and reluctantly put it in the hand of the Maharaja. Then the Maharaja loaded his chariot again and took off down the road. Well, the beggar was upset. He packed up his belongings, went back to the shelter where he was staying, and that night as he was thumbing through his rice preparing to eat for the evening, he found among the grains of rice five grains of solid gold rice. And then it struck him. Had he been more open to give to the Maharaja what was his the Maharaja would have given a bowl full of treasure. See, you and I, we are the beggar. We are. I mean, it's been said before that preaching in its simplest form is simply one hungry beggar trying to show another hungry beggar where to find food, right? We are the hungry beggar. And, and we look for those meals that satisfy, things to fill in our lives, fill up our lives, so that we have some sense of contentment or satisfaction and we can survive from day to day. But we rarely remember that the secret is not in what we keep and hoard and protect of our own. The secret is in how willing we are to let go. It's like the the scholar who went to visit the great Zen master, and he was really proud of his own knowledge. He was kind of arrogant, puffed up, and he went to this Zen master who was known for his great wisdom. And he said to the Zen master, I've come to learn from you, but listen, I have all of the degrees our universities can offer. I've seen all the things this world has to show. I've been on great adventures and expeditions. So, I just want to see if there's anything more that you can teach me for my journey." Well, the wise and patient Zen master (laughs) patiently and slowly took a, a teapot and two teacups and began to pour a cup of tea for his visiting scholar. As he began to pour the tea, it began to rise in the cup until it got almost to the brim. And when it did, the Zen master did not stop pouring and continued to pour until it overflowed the side of the cup and filled the saucer that it was in. But still he didn't stop pouring. He continued to pour until it filled the saucer and ran over the saucer and table's edge into the lap of this, this scholar. And the scholar said, stop, that's enough, whoa. The cup is already full. And the Zen master said, yeah, it is. Your problem is that your cup is already full of your knowledge and your opinions and your position and your experiences. It's so full, there is no room for me to add anything to you. Empty your cup, and then I'll fill it up. Is this this the way it is with God? I mean, is it possible that you and I who long for our cups to be filled with good things, with life, with joy, with abundance, is it possible that we come to God most of the time with our cups already full of things that God did not put there and then we say with full cups, fill her up, (laughs) when really what we need to learn to do in the spiritual journey with Christ is we need to learn the art of emptying out. Of emptying our bowls and emptying our cups so that God may be able to fill it with, with God's good things. Is there room in the cup and bowl of your heart? See, within every one of us there is this kind of God-given craving for God. I mean, it's put there by God. It's, a, it's an innate hunger for the divine. The way that the writer of Colossians puts it, he says that all things have been created by him and for him. What a great line. That you and I not only have been created by God, but we have been created for God. That that we are designed, wired in such a way as to have a, a kind of hunger for the divine, to long with this craving for a communion with the one who made us and knows us. We are made to be in communion with God, to have the hunger and thirst of the soul satisfied by God. But the problem is, we are so prone to filling up our cups and filling up our our bowls with all the things this world offers that we think will satisfy, that there is rarely any room for God to feed us. What we need to do is learn the art of emptying. So we're in this sermon series now, aren't we? We're about three weeks in, called Habits. And we're talking about the particular spiritual disciplines or holy habits that you and I can put into place every day that helps us to stay focused on the one who desires to know us and be known by us. And, and the, the spiritual discipline that I want us to focus on today that will help us in learning to empty our lives so that God may fill them is the discipline. fasting fasting now there are all kinds of definitions for fasting what fasting is but I put together just my own thoughts to try to describe what I believe is at the heart or the spirit of this holy habit called fasting and fasting is simply this fasting is deliberately denying specific cravings and desires right in order to reveal whatever is in the way of our true hunger and thirst for God. Now, we're going to leave that up on the screen for just a minute so that you can just digest that. Let that kind of wash over you for a moment. Can I just repeat it for you? You might even want to write it down. Fasting is deliberately denying specific cravings and desires, all kinds of cravings and desires, Sometimes it's food or drink, but most of the time it's, it's a thousand other cravings and desires. But fasting is deliberately denying specific cravings and desires for a while, for a period of time, in order to reveal what it is that's in the way. What's in the way of our true hunger and thirst for God? You know, if we wanted to put it even in a simpler way, we might say that fasting is emptying our cup so that God can fill it up. It, it, simply put, it's learning to pay attention to the things that are in the way of God filling up our cup. It's learning to empty our cup so that God may fill it up. Now, before we talk about the how-tos and the wherefores fors and, and what fasting is all about, I want to issue just a bit of a disclaimer about fasting. Now, I know that sometimes there are some fasting fears. There are some suspicions about fasting. I mean, it does kind of sound a little odd to our Baptist ears, doesn't it, right? It can seem at times to be a primitive practice, right? Like like this discipline of doing self-harm to your body, of denying basic needs. And I can tell you this. Uh, it's natural if you're asking yourself, what in the world would God want uh, to be satisfied by seeing his people denying them? So how would God, what kind of God would be satisfied by seeing his people um, uh, harming their bodies or, or denying their basic needs? And my answer to you is uh, not our kind of God. Our God takes no pleasure and watching people suffer it takes no pleasure in watching people uh, take on bodily harm for the sake of bodily harm, right? So to be clear, when we talk about fasting, we have to be very careful. You know, because today we know that, that eating disorders are, you know, that they're, they're on an all-time high. There, there's this, this spike in eating disorders among, among our, our uh, neighborhoods and our culture. I want to talk specifically to those sisters and brothers who may be struggling with some body image issues and self-harm issues, especially in regard to eating disorders. Fasting is not about a license to do your body harm. and In all the complexities that go into the struggle that you carry from day to day, I want you to hear your pastor say loudly and clearly, God loves your body, and God loves you the way you are and wants no harm or, or deprivation or, 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 um, or suffering to come to you. When I'm talking about fasting, it's a spiritual discernment. It's a spiritual exercise, and here's what I mean. It's not about body image or how you look, and some people will fast so that they may look a different way, but that's not what I'm talking about here. Spiritual fasting is not about the body so much as it is about the heart, about your spiritual relationship with God, about attempting to identify those cravings in our lives that are so common that we no longer notice them anymore, and yet they remain like a barrier to our intimacy with God. So fasting is about removing some of those cravings for a period of time in order to focus on what our true God-given craving ought to be, a hunger and a thirst for God. Yeah. So those are a couple of disclaimers about fasting. Because at the heart of it, remember, the definition of fasting that we're running with today is that fasting is deliberately denying specific cravings and desires in order to reveal whatever is in the way of our hunger and thirst for God, And the Bible is full of fasting. There are more than 70 examples of individuals and families and tribes and, and whole nations who undergo a spiritual fast where they deny either whole meals or portions of kinds of foods in order to give a spiritual focus to something that they're facing. You know, when Richard Foster talks about uh, the examples of, of fasting in the Bible, he says, all the, the notables who fast in the Bible, it makes up like this, this who's who list in the Bible. He says, among those who, who have uh, very well-known fasts are Moses the lawgiver, David the king, Elijah the prophet, Daniel the seer, Esther the queen, Anna, the prophetess, Paul, the apostle, and Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. All of these exercised fasting for a particular reason to truly hunger and thirst for God. Now, Jesus is our prime example, right, about everything. Jesus is the lens through which you and I see everything. He's the lens through which we interpret all things in Scripture, especially fasting. He not only taught about fasting, talked about fasting, but he practiced fasting through his entire ministry. Before he even launched his his earthly ministry, Jesus entered into the wilderness for 40 days and nights and fasted for 40 days and nights. And at the end of those 40 days and nights, when he had fasted all that time and was completely famished, it was then that he was tempted by the tempter. We read that story uh, here in Mark's go- or Matthew's Gospel. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread, But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's fascinating, this story, because as he makes it to the end of his 40 days and 40 nights, it's then that the tempter comes. Isn't it always then that the tempter comes? When we are most vulnerable, when we are at our weakest when our body, mind, soul is most susceptible to temptation, most prone to, I don't know, fill our bowls and our cups with quick meals that satisfy our needs. And yet, Jesus, He has the perfect answer. Jesus says, One cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What's fascinating to me is is that even though Jesus was at his most vulnerable state physically, he was at his sharpest spiritually. And why? It's for the same reason that you and I are when we fast. Because when we remove those cravings that sometimes stand in the way of our true hunger and our true thirst for God, when those cravings are removed, then no longer are we camouflaging our truest hunger and thirst. Now we see it for what it really is. And now we see what an absolute empty calorie it is to fill our hungry souls with the the food of the world. So... Jesus, there's this amazing story in the Gospel of John. You know this story. Jesus is, is walking with his disciples, and they come to uh, a village in Samaria. And they're thirsty. They've been on the road. They make their way to this well and there's a woman in the middle of the day at this well and and they begin to drink from this well. And a part of the story that we really don't focus on a whole lot is the part where the disciples then leave Jesus and the woman talking alone at the well and they go into town to find some food. While they're gone is when that very famous conversation takes place between Jesus and the woman at the well. You remember the one, right, where he talks to her about drawing from a well that never runs dry. And he sees into her life, and she sees him seeing into her life, and she realizes that she's been drawing from the well of empty relationships, promises that have never been fulfilled, broken hearts, five relationships that have left her brokenhearted, and she, as the metaphor, as the parable would, would allow, is continually dipping The bucket of her heart into the well of emptiness. And Jesus says, there is a fountain that never runs dry. And when you drink of it, you you never are thirsty again. And there's this profound, life-changing kind of moment with her. But then she goes to tell the people in the village all about this encounter with a man who told her everything that she had ever done. But the disciples then show back up on the scene. And when the disciples come up, they don't know about this deep conversation that Jesus has had with this woman. All they know is that they've had something to eat, and Jesus hasn't. And they said, Rabbi, you need to eat something. And he has this great line. He says, I have food that you know not of. I have food that you know not of. And he's not talking about some hidden bread or wine that he's carried with. He's talking about a kind of soul food that can only be experienced when you have relinquished, given away every other kind of craving, stepped away from it, fasted from the cravings that presumably satisfy but predictably leave you hungry again. I have food that you know not of. See what Jesus reveals not just in his teaching and in his example but in in the way that he modeled for us he reveals that fasting is feasting. You and I think that fasting is simply about denying ourselves something like going without like that's that doesn't sound attractive at all but if you actually practice the discipline of relinquishing the cravings that that seem to sustain you from day to day, then you come to the place where you realize, now I am eating a kind of manna that comes from above. I am now eating a food you know not of. Now, even in my fasting, I am feasting because I have learned an inner dependence upon the God who knows what my real appetite is all about. Fasting can be feasting, really. And, and, and this is why we attempt to fast. In fact, Richard Foster goes on to say that when we fast, fasting reveals the things that control us. Until you and I come to the place where we d- deliberately decide to... Um, to deny our our human cravings for food, for drink, for entertainment, for money, for sex, for social media, for whatever stimuli seems to keep uh, that dopamine flowing in the brain, right? Whenever we learn to give up those cravings for a moment, then we are free to eat of the bread in hidden places. But until we do, We never know just how addicted we are to the empty calories that we consume every day in the meals of this world. Yeah, he says it reveals what controls us. But when you do attempt to give up these cravings or to, to deny yourself these particular pleasures from time to time and on particular occasions, when you do, and then when you struggle with it, And then when you fall down on your face because of it and you fail at it, it's then that you are able to recognize how dependent you had been on that thing the whole time. And when you and I become more, I don't know, aware, awake to what we are dependent upon on an everyday kind of unexamined level, then we can begin to recognize those places where we need to depend more upon Christ than upon our own um, sufficiency, our own meals, our own attempt to satisfy the soul hunger that God has given us. Yeah. But when we fast, it reveals what controls us. And the more we struggle, the more it reveals the, the kind of, I don't know, proportional response that we have. We, the, the, the greater our struggle, it reveals the greater our dependency upon things that God didn't give us and God doesn't expect from us. But when we relinquish them for a while, it creates a space in our hearts. It creates an emptiness in our bowl. It creates and openness in our cup for God to actually give us what we've been hungry and thirsty for the whole time. Now, the critic in me is saying the same thing that the critic in you is saying. I mean, can't fasting just be a show? I mean, can't we make a fasting like this charade, this song and dance where we're, it's like we're trying to impress God by, by how spiritual we can be? Yeah, we can. Now, we can make a spiritual show of just about anything we do in this faith of ours. And fasting is one of them. Yeah, it could be a place where we try to show off how spiritual we are. Look how far I've gone with denying myself. Look how disciplined I may be. And Jesus, he dealt with this stuff. In fact, in the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, He devoted a portion of the Sermon on the Mount, these teachings, to the subject of fasting. And this is what he said. He said, When you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward, but when you fast... Put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is an epic teaching of Jesus. He assumes that you'll fast. He said when you fast. He didn't say, hey, if you fast. When you fast. I mean, when you take up the rhythm of of deliberately denying other cravings so that you can truly hunger and thirst for God. When you fast, he says, don't be like the hypocrites. The hypocrites, the hypocrites, the actor, the one who stands on a stage and wears a mask. The truth is, the Pharisees certainly did that. They would disfigure their faces. They would make sure everyone knew how long they had been fasting and how faithful they were to the rigid, to the rigid adherence to this, this pious activity, this spiritual practice. But Jesus said, no, don't, don't be an actor. But when you fast, do it in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when he does this, he reveals this assumption that he has about fasting. And Jesus does. His assumption is this, that fasting is intended to be so personal and so real and so honest that you don't want to tell everybody what you're fasting from. You don't want everybody to know because it's that sincere. It means you are deliberately in secret attempting to to deny certain cravings so that in the space it opens up in your heart, you can actually hunger and thirst for God. And he says, do this in secret, because then in secret, your father who knows who you are and knows what your cravings are and knows what your weaknesses are, your father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, will feed you with bread that you know not of, He will feed you so that in your fasting it feels like you are feasting. This is why we we fast. But yeah, it can be a a show. I mean, the people of, of Isaiah's day demonstrated the same thing. See, God desires a fast not for the sake of harming our bodies or putting on some kind of a spiritual song and dance, a show to impress God because newsflash, You can't impress God. But in Isaiah's day, the people had become so bloated. Let's just use the hunger image for a minute here. So bloated or obese with their self-indulgences, right? With accumulating such great pleasure and comforts, and, and they had accumulated, a very few of them, such great wealth upon the backs of slave labor and the oppressed, that they had forgotten the cries of the outcasts, which they used to be. And in the midst of forgetting the cries of the outcast and pressing down the yoke of oppression so that they could have, you know what they still did? In the middle of that kind of behavior that did not in any way resemble their God, they still practiced their spiritual practices. I mean, they still made sacrifices and they still threw ash. Up in the air and rent their garments, and they fasted regularly. And God said, I am so sick of this. I'm so sick of this song and dance, this show that doesn't impress me at all. Is this the kind of fast that you think I want from you? And then he picks up in, in chapter 58 these powerful words Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your houses? When you see the naked, to cover them and and not hide yourself from your own kin. Then. Your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, here I am. (laughs) What a what a powerful verse or, or passage of Scripture to describe the kind of fasting that God wants. God doesn't care about how long you can go without chocolate or caffeine or you know meat or whatever. God is more interested in what this does to you by denying your cravings. God is not so much interested in a fast that shows off and harms the body. God is interested in a fast that changes your life, that changes the way that you see life and do life. God is interested in a kind of fast that out of discipline, we choose to deny ourselves so that in the space that we create, God can fill up within us this hunger, this God-given craving for more of God. God is not interested in the show, but God is interested in a changed life. Now, years ago, I used to be a a youth pastor, back when I used to be able to stay up all night. right? So we had this event, and every every year for a few years we had this event called um, the 30-Hour Famine. It was World Vision's 30-hour famine. Essentially, it was a lock-in. And for 30 hours straight, nobody ate. We drank water, and students and sponsors, chaperones alike, they would get sponsors in their families and schools and neighborhoods to sponsor them for every hour that they could go without eating. And all the money that was raised, and we, we raised a load of dough, all the money that was raised was to help in hunger relief through world vision. It was fantastic. Well, on that event, we did some things that you might expect that a youth group would do during a lock-in, only we did it without food. We went bowling, we played games, Uno, there was music, we sang, we had devotion. But then at the end of the event, we were to break our fast together. After 30 hours of reflecting on how hungry we were and and we reflected on the hunger of the world and how some have much and most have little and we reflected on what this was doing up here and in here and not just in here. We broke the fast in the morning, but we did it in a clever way. We had a big youth group at that time and and we decided to divide them up. In a bowl, we put little pieces of paper One, two, and three. And we put in that piece of paper, or in that bowl, pieces of paper that had either a one, a two, or a three on it. If you choose the one, you sat at the table uh, furthest away. If you chose two, here's your table. Three, here's your table. But we had taught them that at the time, a certain portion of the world ate anything they wanted to eat any day of the week. So on one table... And we had this feast, and it was breakfast time. So we had stacks of pancakes, and we had croissants and pastries and bacon and eggs and sausage and gravy and biscuits and orange juice. It was picture perfect. It was the smorgasbord of delight. And if you drew one, you got to sit at that table. Only a small handful could choose to sit at the table because I only put just about four or five number ones in the bowl to reflect the disparity of the world. Well, the next largest group got to sit at a table that ate beans because a certain portion of the world is sustained by beans. And the largest group, well, they got to eat rice. Because the largest portion of the world sustains itself from day to day on rice. So after everyone drew their numbers and realized where they were sitting, there was absolute dismay. They didn't see this coming. Well, now the five who got to sit at the big feast, they were in heaven. Well, of course, we had like a middle schooler who was already like elbow deep in pancakes and syrup, and it was, he was having a time. Uh, But then we had the rest of the youth group who were absolutely dismayed. They were angry, upset. Not so much upset that they're eating rice, but upset that, that they weren't eating the other thing. Well, We had this one student. And he was, I don't know how to say this, but he's one of those students who just always got under the skin of everybody else around him. He was always getting into trouble. He was always talking back. He had kind of a sarcastic tone all the time. He was... Negative, nothing was ever going to be right, and he was constantly picking fights. He was a bit of a bully, big guy. But he was sitting at the first table. Something had happened to him over the 30 hours, and I watched it as it did. And there they all are, sitting at breakfast, some kind of just raking through some rice, others picking through some beans, and I see him watching the whole thing. He comes up to me, and he says, hey, can we, can we do anything we, we want with our, with our food? And I thought, this is money. He said, can we do anything we want? And I said, yeah, yeah, you, sure. I watched him go back to his table, and he sat down with the other four who were at the table, and they kind of huddled for a minute. And almost like breaking a huddle on a football field, on two, on two, hut, hut, they get up and they get a stack of plates and they fix plates for all the other students and they share everything that they had access to so that everybody who did not have could now have. And the feast was enjoyed by everyone. See, and I think about that story and I'm still, I'm just moved by what I remember seeing because that's the kind of fast God is interested in. Not one that shows off and not one that, that somehow harms the body for the sake of harming the body, but one that changes your life. One that changes the way that you view yourself and others and God to the point that it shapes what you do day after day after day. Is there a hunger in you that is a hunger other than the one God put in your heart? Because if there is, guess what? Welcome to the human race. You've got some company there. But the discipline of fasting is a simple attempt to remove certain cravings that we might be able to reveal the God-given craving of being transformed into his image. Yeah. So, so what do you do if you want to try to fast? Fast. My suggestion is this. I recommended a book to you at the beginning of the series, A Celebration of Discipline uh, by Richard Foster. A, a whole chapter is designed to talk to you about exactly how to fast, what to do before you, before you begin your fast, how to eat, how to come out of a fast, all kinds of technicalities uh, in, in case you want to begin to experiment with fasting. But to uncomplicate it for a minute. Can I just put it this way? If you want If you want to start fasting, I recommend this simple step. Ask yourself, or ask God to reveal to yourself, is there a craving in me at all greater than my craving for God? Do I look forward to this particular meal or dessert or drink or television show, or social media platform, or engagement with these friends, or this activity? Do I look forward to a round of golf, or a match of tennis, or a workout in the gym more than I am occupied with my desire to abide with Him? And whatever the Spirit reveals as one of your deep cravings, attempt to give it up for a minute. I mean, just a minute. Maybe if it's food-related, you don't start with a 40-day fast. Maybe you start by choosing on a particular day of the week to skip lunch. That's it. But instead of just skipping lunch, if lunch is your thing and you look forward to lunch because it's your time where you get to listen to your podcast and eat your favorite meal or whatever, instead of simply not eating lunch, bring other disciplines to bear in that time so that As you drink water and don't eat lunch that day, maybe you read scripture. Maybe you you pray. Maybe you abide in complete silence before God and experience solitude. But whatever you do, you fill that time with some discipline that helps you trigger your awareness of the deeper hunger of the heart. But it might be that your deepest craving is not something related to food, but maybe it's something related to entertainment, to food or drink or sex or shopping or um, some kind of social media or engagement of some sort. Whatever it is, choose a time and a rhythm to step away from it. But instead of simply stepping away from it for a season, step away from it and replace that moment or that time with a discipline, to commune with God. And when you do, and when you fail at it, it will reveal to you the work that we still have ahead. It will reveal to you that there is a God who is desiring in your fasting for you to feast, to feast upon the thing that truly, truly satisfies Fasting can be feasting. Now, during this season of Lent, there have been some wonderful resources available to help us in our spiritual journey. I came across an invitation to fast for Lent, uh, and it was written uh, by this, uh, this man uh, whose name is about to magically appear on your screen. It was written by yeah, William Arthur Ward. And this invitation to, to, to fast during Lent was provocative to me because it gave me the image that you and I set a buffet table for us to fill our lives. We gorge our, we are gluttons, we gorge our lives with all kinds of satisfactions. But if we fast, it's as if we're clearing the table of all false meals, all empty calories to the soul so that we can eat from this buffet, this messianic banqueting table that has been set by the Messiah for us to feast fully. So when you give up something to fast, whether it is a food or a habit or an attitude or a perspective or an emotion, when you give up a particular thing to fast, what you're doing is you're saying yes to feasting on this other thing. And I want you to consider these words as your invitation to the deeper walk. He says, fast from judging others. Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> fast from ju- And when you fast from judging others, you'll be able to feast on the Christ within them. He, he goes on to say, fast from emphasis on difference and feast on the unity of all life. Fast from apparent darkness because we feel and recognize darkness these days all the time. Fast from the apparent darkness and feast on the reality of light. Fast from thoughts of illness, feast on the healing power of God. Fast from words that pollute, feast on phrases that purify. Fast from discontent and feast on gratitude fast from anger and feast on patience fast from pessimism and feast on optimism fast from complaining feast on appreciation fast from worry feast on trust in god's care fast from unrelenting pressure that you may be feeling and feast on unceasing prayer Fast from facts that depress, because there are plenty of those. Fast from facts that depress, and feast on the verities, the the confidences, the beliefs uh, that uplift. Fast from lethargy, feast on enthusiasm. Fast from thoughts that weaken, feast on promises that inspire. Fast from shadows of sorrow, feast on the sunlight of serenity. Fast from problems that overwhelm and feast on prayer that undergirds. Feast from bitterness, or fast from bitterness and feast on forgiveness. Fast from self concern, feast on compassion for others. Fast from personal anxiety, feast on eternal truth. Fast from discouragements and feast on hope. When we fast, It creates a space for us to feast. What will you feast upon today? The invitation that you have to fasting is not some bizarre, primitive, kind of outdated exercise that the ancients expressed and practiced. It is a holy living habit that the living spirit among us is inviting us to experiment with, to experience so that we can relinquish all of the the hoarding and the feasting upon um, meals that don't satisfy in order to be satisfied by the only meal that endures. Now, you may be hearing this talk these many weeks about holy habits. You may be hearing this talk about practices to put in your life so that you can draw close to Christ, but maybe you're sitting where you are listening to this message And you realize that you have never actually begun a relationship with Christ. And while it sounds great to deepen your walk with the Lord, maybe for you the very first step is to take the first step in walking with the Lord. To yield your life before Him. And if you do it, it it begins with a simple prayer that sounds something like this. And and where you are, just pray it as, as I say it out loud. God, I recognize that that if, if my hope is dependent upon my abilities, I'm doomed. <laughs> if my life is truly all in my own hands, that, well, then I'm a goner. But if, if you'll take my life and, and redeem my life and forgive my sins and, and renew my heart, I will follow you wherever you lead me, because I will belong to you, and, and and I will I will do my best to 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 give up appetites and 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 you know cravings that that don't look like you and don't come from you. But I will need your help, so I yield to you to become your follower, so that I may actually feast upon bread and upon the wine comes from you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, friends, if you prayed that prayer today, or if you've heard something in this message today that has compelled you to want to take a new and next step, I want to hear about that. You need to tell somebody that you prayed that prayer. Tell me. Email us at the church and let us know so that we can continue this conversation and walk alongside you as we all walk as hungry beggars, showing other hungry beggars where to find the real food. So until we see one another again, my prayer is that Christ would go before you to prepare your way. May Christ go behind you on the days that you you fear and feel like retreating to encourage you one step further at a time. Christ go to your right and Christ to your left, abiding closer than even a sister or a brother. May Christ go above you on the days when dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word. May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. But mostly may Christ go in you, transforming you from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm.